Hi everyone, David Moody, Victorian State Manager of National Disability Services here with an episode which is more about the sector development side of podcast topics than the NDIS. It's called Implementing the Child Safe Standards, a conversation with sector leaders. Now we all have a moral, ethical and legal responsibility to actively prevent the abuse and neglect of children. The Victorian Child Safe Standards are a result of recommendations of the Betrayal of Trust Inquiry, an evidence of what works to prevent child abuse. Children with disability experience an increased risk of abuse across all services and locations. Did you know that children with disability are over three times more likely to experience physical violence than children without disability? Over four times at higher risk for emotional abuse and neglect. Nearly three times more likely to experience sexual abuse and more likely to have experienced repeated incidents of sexual abuse by the time they are 18 years old. Providers need to have processes in place and ensure their staff know how to keep children safe and protected from abuse wherever they are. NDS has developed a number of resources for service providers to understand and follow the Victorian Child Safe Standards when supporting children and young people with disability. By visiting nds.org.au forward slash resources and navigating to the Victorian Child Safe Standards page, you can find the following resources. An educational PowerPoint presentation on the Child Safe Standards for your organisation to use for your own staff training. A 20-minute video of a narration of the Child Safety Standards slides entitled Promoting the Safety of Children with Disability in the Context of the Victorian Child Safe Standards, which I was very pleased to lend my voice to and a video discussion entitled Implementing the Child Safe Standards, a conversation with sector leaders. Today I'd like to bring you this last video in podcast form, the discussion between myself, Dr Deb Absler, Julie Duke and Georgina Frost explored thoroughly the practical implementation of the Child Safe Standards and in the interest of getting the key messages communicated far and wide across Victoria and beyond, we've decided to add it to our podcast library so you can be better prepared to lead or work within a truly child-safe organisation. Welcome to our discussion on Victoria's child-safe standards. My name's David Moody and I'm the Victorian State Manager of National Disability Services, the national and Victorian peak body for non-government disability service providers. I'm joined today by Julie Duke, Quality Coordinator at Villa Maria Catholic Homes, Georgina Frost, President of the Committee of Management at the Association for Children with Disability and President of the Disability Services Board and also a parent of a young adult with disability. And also, of course, Dr Deb Absler, Project Consultant to the Child Safe Project at NDS. We'll be referring to the Child Safety presentation available on our website. The purpose of this discussion is not to introduce you to these standards, but rather to add some context to their implementation and good practice. If you're not familiar with the Child Safe Standards, I recommend you watch our narrated introduction to the Child Safe Standards for Disability Services first. You'll find it at nds.org.au. For those of you who are new to the standards, they include, one, embedding a culture of child safety through effective leadership. Two, having a child safe policy or statement of commitment to child safety. Three, having a clear code of conduct that establishes appropriate behaviour with children. Four, screening, supervision, training and other human resource practices that reduce the risk of child abuse by new and existing personnel. Five, clear processes for responding to and reporting suspected child abuse. Six, identifying and removing risks of child abuse. And seven, strategies to promote the participation and empowerment of children. NDS has been looking at the implications of the Child Safe Standards for Disability Service Providers and working with Dr Deb Absler and a member reference group to develop some resources to assist the sector. This work aligns with the NDS Zero Tolerance work around prevention of abuse, which we've been undertaking for some years now. So first to you, Deb. You've been engaged by NDS to bring awareness of the child safety standards to our sector. Can you tell us a bit more about the need for this and how the standards have come about? Well, the need for this is something that there's been quite a focus on in recent years. Of course, it's very, very important for our community that all children have the right to feel and be safe wherever they are across all situations. And unfortunately, we now have a lot of detailed information um, that's come through the Royal Commission and other studies that have been undertaken that 
Unfortunately, children are much more at risk. We now have some very startling figures that are telling us that children are at risk of different forms of abuse across a number of different settings, both in their organisational settings and in more personal settings. And this is particularly relevant for children with disability because one of the things, and I'm just going to read some very startling and distressing figures, that we know that children with disability are, in fact, more than three times at a higher risk of physical violence than other children. They are more than four times a higher risk for emotional abuse and neglect. They are nearly three times more likely to experience sexual abuse and more likely to have experienced repeated incidents of sexual abuse by the time they are 18. And these are really very distressing Mm. and difficult statistics to think about, but they really highlight for us that there's a focus on this because there needs to be a focus. Because we all have a moral, ethical and legal responsibility to actively address children's safety and be their champions. So in some respects, I think Deb has addressed some of the fundaments of the next question, but in any event, it's now compulsory for organisations to implement the child safe standards. But I wonder if I might address this to all of you. From your perspective, why is it important for organisations to do this? Is it just about reducing the statistics, the horrendous statistics that Deb's been talking about, or is there something more to it than just that? Well, of course, as you say, it's a moral and an ethical imperative that the whole community is obligated, really, to protect and promote safety of children. It's about human rights for all people across our sector, disability supports, but across the whole community. And the statistics are extremely disturbing and we need to take action and change the way we do things to change that outcome. And so, Georgina, from your perspective, I mean, is it just about in order to support the community to understand what they need to do, we need standards? Clearly that's important and being aware of the standards is important. But we need to look at historically how things have changed over time. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in an era uh, when my grandparents did say things like children should be seen and not heard, and, and they said it to me. So things like the voice of a child wasn't heard generally. Things like disability were not necessarily talked about, and including people with disability in the community didn't have the same approach as we did previously because... 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people with disability were very much excluded and weren't part of the mainstream conversation or included in our communities generally. So we've really shifted, I think, in the way that we perceive children and the way we perceive disability. And of course, what the recent Royal Commission and the Parliamentary Inquiries into Abuse has highlighted is that there was a lot of terrible incidences of abuse of people with disability and children with disability. And of course, it was swept under the carpet. These issues weren't raised and heard and dealt with the way that we as a society now think they should be dealt with appropriately. So, Georgina, do you think the mere implementation of standards is going to act as a a panacea for all those ills or are we talking... No, I don't. Okay. I I think it's the start of the conversation. Um, It's government recognising that we think that these are appropriate standards of behaviour across the community particularly in organisations that have the care of our children, such as schools, childcare centres, sports clubs and associations, all those places where children want to be involved and should be involved, but where they need to be able to go and be safe. Georgina, I wonder if I might ask you as a board member of the Victorian Association of Children with a Disability, how can leaders embed a culture of child safety in your opinion? Well, I do think it is a top-down issue. Uh, So you do have to start by having a level of awareness at board level. I don't think we currently have that in organisations in Victoria or Australia, and I think Victoria is already ahead of the pack uh, because we've got the child safe standards having been rolled out in schools by the Victorian Education Department. But I think that we need to get the word out there. I don't know if there's an immediate panacea as to how we do that, but these conversations are all very important for actually getting the word out there. So start with board level, then look at, well, what are your policies and procedures internally, but what is the culture of your organisation? Do you think about safety as a number one priority or not? And I I think we have to be clear that we're not talking about having in the past sent our children off to school or to an organisation where we just thought they'd be unsafe. Of course we thought they'd be safe in the past. It's just that there have always been incidences in the past, or unfortunately there were incidences where 
something did occur where child safety was impacted. And so if we start from the top down saying, okay, from board level, policy procedure and general awareness level, children should be safe. But then of course, educating the community. Parents should also expect that mm. when they send their child off to go to a swim class or gymnastics or to school, that yes, their child will be safe. So just building upon that, Deb and Julie, how can leaders perhaps other than those sitting at board level embed a culture of child safety in your opinion? What other mechanisms can they be relying upon to really sort of drill down and get that culture throughout their organisations? I think one of the things that's really very exciting about the child safe standards is they actually provide, it's like a map of how to what we've been talking about before, Georgina was talking about, having a different culture within organisations. And the actual standards, you know, almost like a step-by-step stage of these are the sorts of activities, approaches that will support embedding a different culture within the organisation. So that it's also acknowledging that we're talking about both practical things to do, but we're also talking about an atmosphere. We're talking about an approach. We're talking about a culture that is really making an organisation safe for everybody that's in that organisation. So that's both at the board level, at the work level, but also for the people who are receiving the service. So it's it's talking about a, a really an attitudinal change. And I think that the steps that they include, so looking at the way you know, there needs to be a code of conduct, that there needs to be um, a definite statement about a commitment to safety, there need to be in terms of each stage of employing new staff, that at each level of activity within an organisation, there is a commitment to child safety and there are actions that are taken to support those practices. So it's really embedding, making a a particular philosophy attitude, drilling it down at that sort of macro level, but also at the sort of management level, but also in day-to-day interactions between staff, across staff, but also obviously between the staff and the children. Um, and families who are in contact with the organisation. Unless you have a contribution from boards and executive leadership, there won't be any resources applied to that and it won't be a priority for the organisation. And I think that's really important to making sure that it is embedded and that we have transparency from uh, leadership to parents and the community as well. So we're really talking about, at all levels of the organisation, culture change, which mm, I know is yeah. almost a cliche because yeah, we use yes. it so often, yeah, but yeah. culture change, as we know, what's that phrase? Culture beats strategy every time. Yes. And mm. another one is change management is incredibly hard to do mm. and takes a long period of time. Mm. I think it's really important that we're realistic about our expectations as to what organisations can do, though. Mm. And I think that Julie made a really good comment before in relation to changing community attitudes through modelling. Because the reality is that while large organisations with resources, schools, large not-for-profits, they can actually spend money on establishing processes, procedures, great policies, training of their staff. A small not-for-profit sports club that can barely get by from year to year isn't in the same position. So it doesn't mean that they shouldn't have the same obligations. It's just that, well, how do we do that? And I think that's why... Um, making sure that you have the ability to make a statement as opposed to going through establishing a policy, which might be a bit beyond them, Mm. having a statement, but then also having larger organisations model the appropriate behaviour. The example I'm thinking of would be, say, a football club. If you get a large resourced AFL club establishing that this is our approach to child safety, then it's appropriate for smaller regional clubs to say, well, okay, well, they're modelling that, that's the expectation, that's the Mm -hmm. way that it should be done. They're the kind of thoughts that go through my head is we've got to get our leaders, our large organisational leaders as well, to embrace this and model this as appropriate. And then it sets the standard across the community and the expectation across the community. And if our focus is actually on um, promoting safety for children, then the larger organisations would be sharing their resources and their knowledge and practice as well to support small community groups. Absolutely. Yeah. So then you just have to, here it is, roll it out. But again, it gets back to that 
it's all very well to have a policy on the top shelf, but mm. it's actually living it mm. and yeah. making sure that you put the words in motion and you walk the walk. Because I don't imagine any of this panel would suggest that merely by implementing standards and merely by having a code of conduct can an organisation mm. expect to move towards a child-safe right. approach. But, yeah. it, but I think there's still important parts of it. Mm. Because yep. It's about saying, you know, this is what's important to us. We are going to have an organisation that is promoting safety for those who are receiving our services. And that means that at every level there needs to be action that will support that. So yes, there will be a child safe policy or conduct. There will also be hopefully committees at the board level, at the senior management level, at program levels, you know, that will be specifically looking at issues around how to promote safety. There will be practices to do with how you employ people, how you induct them into the organisation, how you supervise them, what sort of training you provide. It's like a lens that you're always looking at that's informing how are we going to actively make sure that everybody who comes to our service is going to be respected, is going to be listened to, is going to be informed and is going to be promoted to be actively safe within the activities mm. that we're doing. So it's like, it's an attitude, it's a philosophy, it's a framework. It's, it needs all those parts. As you say, it can't just have a written thing that sits mm. on it. You know, it needs to be actively embedded into every single action that's happening for that organisation. And part of that is knowing and understanding that this is a priority. Mm. This is something that needs to occur, that needs to be part of our thinking and our planning that we're going to make sure that our organisation is going to operate in this way. Well, Deb, just in terms of your um, reference to employment practices, that mm. brings us quite nicely to the next thing I want to discuss with the mm. panel, which is around how we can use human resources practices to reduce the risk of child abuse. In my experience um, more recently, the role of making sure you, that you properly reference check with a conversation about someone has become increasingly important because you can get amazing references for prospective employees, mm -hmm. but you really need to spend the time and having the conversation to really understand more about that person because while we can do precautionary things like having uh, working with children check, police checks, it's having those additional conversations as well where people hesitate in their recommendation or they're not prepared to go that extra step that may then perhaps um, put some alarm bells in place. What sort of questions would you be asking in terms of a reference check to elicit the responses that are telling you whether or not a worker is likely to be working child safe? Well, I think you've got to have the conversations about their ex previous experience of where they worked, what they did, what their processes were. So it's very much about their actual experience as opposed to what they would do. It's mm -hmm. what, what you have done. And then actually getting effectively testimonials from their supervisors confirming. And Given the fact that we want to and we have implemented these standards, I think a direct question in relation to complaints, issues, problems can be asked. Mm. It's legitimate to ask that and mm. see what the response is. Julie, Deb, yeah. would you agree with that? Would oh, you? Absolutely yep. agree with that and it's an essential part of the recruitment process. Mm. And another strategy that we've added to that is doing group interviews and problem solving and observing people interacting with others and some personality profiling as well to make sure that we're getting the right people. Can I ask you a bit more about that? In mm. terms of the group interviews, what, mm. what type of questions are you actually asking to elicit desired responses in, in group? Well, we'd have scenarios of difficult situations and people together problem solve. And there's an observer who would be watching to see who's taking the lead and the, the sorts of ideas that come up in the group. So you're looking for leadership in awareness of child safety yes. um, from preferred members of the group for employment? And identifying breaches of human rights. Right, so strong awareness in, of a hum, the human rights framework in which our sector operates. Yes. Okay, yeah. and Deb? Well, I think also, I mean, I know it probably sounds a little bit you know, like policing, but I think also it can be quite helpful once someone even is employed, observing them, observing their interactions with children. And of course, the other thing that we need to always keep in mind when we're talking about child safety is part of what we know very well that child safe organisations really respect the voice of children and families and incorporate 
that is a feedback loop. So it's also, I think, when you have new staff seeking feedback from children and young people and families, certainly providing a message that we want to hear what, if there are any concerns or, you know, what, what it was like working with this person, just so that you're really getting that perspective from a whole, you know, you've got the paperwork, you've got the interviews, which is a slightly different structure, and then you've got the actual interaction. And of course, you know, things like having regular supervision and regular opportunities to review that person's practices. Mm. And as you say, Julie, I think it's really important to have some quite um, significant sort of scenarios when you're interviewing people about if this happened, how would you react or what's your attitude about, you know, picking a few quite pointed um, examples of how somebody would implement discipline or, you know, respond to certain situations so that you're really getting a feeling for that person. I wonder if I could ask all of you if you're aware of um, the extent to which organisations you're working with or working within have already adapted their codes of conduct to reflect the requirements of the child safe standards. Are we still early days? What are we seeing? I think there's a real continuum. You know, for many organisations, this was something they were already doing. And so it may be that they've just had to adapt some new aspects of the child safe standards. Whereas for others, it's something that they may have been doing in practice, but they may not have the, the formal structures organised. And for some, it may be very new territory altogether. You know, it's really... And I think there's a whole continuum across that. There's a lot of support for organisations. I think that's another thing It's important to say. There's a lot of material that's already been developed, a lot of resources, and we make links to that in the actual slides that we've produced on the website. Because it's important that people don't think they have to start from the beginning. There's a lot of knowledge that's already been built up about what works to make a child safe um, organisation work effectively. And so I really would encourage people to, to look at those resources and build on those. They don't have to start from scratch. There's a lot of good work that's already been done. And how is the disability sector going? when compared to um, the other sectors within the community services space? Well, I think it also depends on what sort of program. So if services have got, say, out-of-home care, uh, residential services, they probably have already had to deal with a lot of these areas as part of that compliance. I think the beauty, again, of the child safe standards are it's to all organisations across the board, but they have identified children with disability as one of the key at-risk groups. And they're saying by that that, you know, they're identifying that children with disability are more at risk than others, and so it's even more important that these standards are implemented. And I think that the answer is that there's, again, there's a variety, and I think it's important to support all organisations, wherever they are in that continuum, to be working hard on implementing these standards and seeing the benefits of that, not just because they're being compliant and they're ticking a box, but it really hopefully will mean that the atmosphere within their organisation will begin to change and that will be a benefit for, for the workers as well as for the clients. You made reference already to how Villa Maria is yeah. changing the way it actually yeah. selects people for, for work based upon group discussions yeah. and the like. Are those changes also being reflected in your documents such as your code of conduct and the like? I would say implementing the code of conduct is quite complex for an organisation mm-hmm. like ours. We have aged care accommodation services as well as services in the home and we're providing disability supports to children and adults, accommodation services, direct care, behaviour support Mm. and allied health services. We have early childhood services and a school. So the regulatory systems for all of those have codes of conduct. Uh, We have the DHHS Code of Conduct for Disability Support Workers that is being implemented. There has to be a code of conduct at the school and we need a statement of commitment to child safety. And now coming up will be the code of conduct from the NDIS commissioner as well. You're referring to the Quality and Safeguarding? That's correct, yes. Quality and Safeguards Commission, the National Commission? Yes. So looking at all of those things, and and we have our organisation's code of conduct because that has to cover the aged care component. Mm -hmm. There's a body of work to be done for larger, complex organisations in how to approach all of those different aspects. I was going to ask you, I mean, is Villa Maria... Um, as a quite sizable organisation providing Mm. a range of community services, are you looking to consolidate your codes of conduct and other materials so as to have perhaps one or two documents apply across a range of the services that you provide? I would say yes, that's correct. And 
Our organisational code of conduct covers, I would say, all of those areas, but we need to be specific about people with disability, about children and other groups in the community that may be marginalised and at risk. And given we're talking about codes of conduct, can I just mm. ask you, how does Villa Maria as an organisation satisfy itself of the level of understanding that its workforce has about the code of conduct and what it means? Mm. Well, part of the induction is face-to-face -face classroom teaching and then there's reading things online and signing documents. So there is a code of conduct and statement of commitment to child safety that now begun to send to people before they're recruited. So they would receive it and return it to us before they have a contract of employment. Right. Well, one of my thoughts when we're talking about this is, again, smaller organisations and volunteers, mm -hmm. because they don't go through the same formal recruitment process. In fact, for a lot of organisations, you're lucky to get volunteers mm. and good volunteers are hard to come by. So again, it gets back to those community expectations, I think, and um, community education and awareness that if you do go in and volunteer in an ideal world, there'll be a volunteer's code of conduct or a volunteer's declaration that perhaps you give and people would be careful to make sure that you don't immediately allow a, a new volunteer access to children unsupervised, for example, that you'd try and stage it. But it's not a perfect world, so these are not necessarily easy things to always manage. So, again, if we've got awareness in organisations that most parents come into contact with, which is schools and for people with a child with a disability, some of the disability service providers, and if they have the codes and the processes and policies in place, then their expectations are already set. Mm. So then they would also be expecting the same level of awareness at a smaller organisation. If it's not there, then, then they can be involved in educating them as mm. well. And I think it is important that we all take it on. It's not just the organisation's responsibility, it's parents need to be aware because for kids with disabilities, your parent is your chief advocate. Yeah. I mean, mm. for all parents, you're the chief advocate mm. of your child, but for kids with disabilities, absolutely, and for a much longer period of time during their life because they don't necessarily attain the independence that other children do as quickly. So having considered how organisations are going about implementing standards, codes of conduct and other elements of the Child Safe Framework, I just wanted to start with you, Deb, and ask what are the risk factors in organisational culture to achieving a child safe environment? I think there are a number of different risks and I think they, they get operated at different levels. But I just wanted to comment on the really important point that Georgina just made. And I think that one of the shifts in... Um, hopefully that the child safe standards will enable um, organisations to have is thinking about the children's safety is everybody's business, absolutely mm. everybody. And that you know includes absolutely everybody who comes in contact with a child. So it does include people who are in a professional role, an administrative role, an organisational role, but also people who are volunteers or people who are working in a different role, like it might be um, picking on someone, the gardener or the, the driver or the people who are working within an organisation who don't necessarily have direct professional contact with the child but will interact mm. or may interact with the child. And I think that's, an, again, another strength of the standards is that it's saying this is all of our business. We all have to work together to make sure the children are safe. So I think one of the... This sort of links in back to your question, David is that one of the risks is that we don't think, or we think it's only a certain small category of people. It's not, it's everybody. And one of the things that the standards um, actually encourage people to do is to undertake a risk analysis. And what that means is for each organisation to think about what is our climate, what is our culture, what are our norms, what are our practices, where do we do things well and where might be the gaps? And that's one of the things that we're encouraging organisations to do. Once again, see this as an opportunity to reflect on what's working well and what needs to be further strengthened. And I like some of these questions that we've got in, in the slides, and I think they're useful because it's thinking, you know, is this a safe place for everyone to raise concerns? Because one of the things that's a very big issue about safety is that often when we have heard about situations where children have been at risk and been abused, is that people will often then other workers or other people will say, oh, 
yes, I did have a sense of that about that particular worker or I wasn't quite sure what was going on or, yes, it did seem that that child's behaviour had changed but nobody had acted. And mm. I think what this is all about as well is enabling people to be more informed about what are the risk factors at the organisational level. So in terms of what is the actual service delivery, are there situations where children are on their own with adults and that is a risk factor more than mm. other situations where there may be other, you know, not one-on-one? Are there sort of risk factors in the physical environment? Are there spaces or places in the organisation where no one can see anyone? A child can actually be with an adult and no one else can see what's going on. You know, are there risk factors in the staffing model? Are there people that are working with the children who may not be as trained or have professional skills and therefore may be more at risk of not knowing what a child needs to be safe in terms of their development? You know, we talk about other organisations with a closed sort of environment where things aren't spoken about. One of the big things, as I said before, is, is the issue of being a whistleblower. Is there other organisations that have a culture where it's not OK to talk about something that's going wrong, you know, the, the, a real sense of loyalty. But I think it's misguided loyalty mm. because... And partly this moves into a very difficult topic, which is the topic of grooming. You know, we do know that, unfortunately, uh, people who are pedophiles, who are putting children in at-risk situations, are often very good at grooming not only the children but other staff or other people around them making presenting themselves as a very likeable person, a very trustworthy person. So it's all, a risk factor is also making people aware that grooming is a factor that operates. There's a risk of grooming. There's a risk of grooming and how can you be aware of that? And that's where a good code of conduct that can actually provide protections and boundaries around mm. that. So mm. then where people are breaching the code of conduct mm. by grooming behaviour, for instance, providing special gifts for people or having involvement with people outside the workplace. If those things are covered in your code of conduct, then mm. you have an avenue to manage or respond to those incidents. I was going to ask both um, Georgina and Julie, actually, um, coming off the back of what Deb's been saying about risk factors, increasingly disability service providers are and are expected to provide disability services outside a centre-based environment mm. and far more in community and in mm. the home. Now, in those circumstances, and mindful of some of the things we've been talking about as risk factors, including working with kids in isolation, mm. grooming and other risks which essentially, if they're out of sight, they could be out of mind, what strategies can organisations use in your, your experience to reduce the likelihood of these risks crystallising? I'm not sure if I know the answer to that question. It's such a complex area. I do think that some of the campaigns that have been run, for example, the Disability Services Commission, OK to Complain, yep. looking at the way that we communicate these messages as well for people with disability and children with disability, because if their level of um, literacy is extremely low, then you've got to look at, well, how else do we get these messages across so that they feel comfortable and I think that can be a big challenge. Mm. So I do think we're working on it but I don't know if I've got the answer. <laughs> okay, no, that's alright, that's why I'm asking everybody. So Julie, coming off the back of what Deb was saying about um, some of the risk factors including working with children in isolation, working with children without direct management or supervision by another person and in the context of the NDIS increasingly being about parents exercising choice by having their children with disability being supported in the home and in community. How does Villa Maria go about mitigating the risks that have been alluded to by Deb? And Deb, you might want to jump in as yeah, well. Yeah, to yes. Our greatest challenge is promoting safety when there's no one around. Mm -hmm. And it's partly about our recruitment, but also making sure that everybody who's interacting with children, including community members, family and our staff, are aware of the things that they need to respond to. Absolutely. And I think that one of the other things, and again, these can be very difficult things to think about, but I think we have a responsibility to children to think about them, is that there may be features of the children themselves that mean they are more at risk, they are more vulnerable mm. um, of abuse. And I think we need to be just mindful of that. Again, there's been a lot of research done on, on this area. We have found that, that risk factors for particular children are higher based on the severity of their disability. So children with multiple disabilities, in particular 
combinations of disabilities are more at risk. We know that children obviously requiring intimate personal care are more at risk. Children who have um, communication needs that cannot communicate verbally or have other sensory challenges again are more at risk. And I think that there's been a lot of, again, good work being done. Our colleagues at SCOPE have done wonderful work with providing a lot of resources for children now to be able to um, use their different communication aids um, and, and they're including on that uh, situations where they can say, I don't feel safe and explain to them what that means. One of the ways we can protect children is that we, if we're more knowledgeable about the particular categories that may be more at risk. And another way of protecting children is, as we say, is empowering parents to be aware of the risk factors. And I've also done some work with ACD. We've developed a, a fantastic resource mm. called Pep Talks. It's mm. a web-based resource. It's a website which, in fact, has two parts of it. Both of it's for parents. One part is for parents to assist them if they are going to be employing people, say, through NDIS being the ones who... Um, are taking the initiative to employ people to care for their children. What are the risk factors? What are the um, activities and strategies? And we go through the child safe standards for parents, how they can apply it. Um, and the other part of the uh, website is looking at ways in which parents can support children in their development. And I think that's another a factor here because one of the things we know as a risk factor is if children aren't aware about issues to do with sexuality, issues to do with development, they haven't been given information by the people in their environment about what's, what good touching is, what safe touching is, what scary touching is. You know, they need mm. to have this sort of education and information and it needs to be part of their growing up experiences across the board so that if something happens that does, doesn't feel right, they'll be able to alert someone to that. So, Georgina, pep talk. Talk us through a bit about what that involves and, and what, what outcomes, if any, you're seeing at this early stage of its implementation. At the moment, it, it is very early on, and thanks, Deb, for all her hard work in relation to that. And I think one of the important parts of pep talks is, is recognising this um, change in children over time and their needs and their requirements and how you communicate with them. And when Deb was talking before, I was thinking about the challenges of keeping particularly teenagers safe and teenagers with a disability and an intellectual disability safe because all boys and girls want to be part of the crowd. They want mm. to be included. They very much rely on their peers in relation to guidance and information. So having them all understand child safety is, is so important because they look to each other like all teenagers naturally do and I certainly know of kids that have gone to places like Tinder and they mm. are very much open to inappropriate contact mm. and behaviour and, and grooming has started mm. and again with kids with disabilities once they turn 18 they're adults yep. and if they choose to do that then they can go and use social media the way they want to but it is so important then that we try and equip them as parents, as educators, with the right information and tools as much as we can so that they recognise inappropriate behaviour and that they can actually start getting out of the situation or seeking the help that they need to and the support they needed to. So that's why a resource like Pep Talks is so important because it is helping equip parents and carers to deal with those situations, particularly as your child grows, because their needs do change so much over mm. time. So it sounds to me, from what everyone's been saying, that the, the child safe standards actually demand a, a pretty significant capability development piece yep. for providers, yep. their boards, their workforces and the, mm -hmm. their leadership, parents, mm -hmm. children, and almost certainly, in fact, the community, uh, in terms of raising the awareness of potential risk factors, what to look for and have, being aware of the rights of children in a human rights context. And, and I think your term's very important, and this is capacity building for everyone, that will have broader broader change that will bring... We had an excellent example from someone in our reference group, remember, who talked about a terrible situation in their organisation where there had been a situation where a child had been abused. It had been devastating for all the staff when they heard about it, and they turned it into a training opportunity. They turned it into a situation where... They did some debriefing and they had a chance for 
the staff to meet together and talk about how could this have happened? You know, we need to you know, unpack it, we need to think about it, and we need to learn from it so that we make sure it doesn't happen again. So I thought that was an excellent example of even when something, you know, terrible had happened, it was used productively mm. and proactively as a way of educating everybody. And that can only be a good thing. Mm. Absolutely. And yeah. if you have a continuous improvement and a reporting culture, in an organisation that prevents things from being hidden and swept under the carpet, not talked about, until there's a significant incident. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on now by talking about, dare I say, the most important party to this process being the children mm -hmm. and how we effectively elicit the voice of children within organisations. Julie and Georgina, this is an area that organisations probably feel least confident about in many cases. How do you effectively elicit the voices of children and young people in, in, in your organisations or other organisations in which you're involved? And from your experience, what are some good strategies for doing so? Again, ACD doesn't necessarily deal directly with children, but in my experience outside the organisation, it's actually spending time with the children and being with the children because that's the only way, particularly with children with disabilities, that you understand some of their behavioural needs and patterns. Yep. And when they are behaving in an usual way as opposed to an unusual way, if it's unusual, what's the cause of that? And it might not be abuse, but it could be they're feeling unwell, mm. they could have had a fight with their friends, you never know, but it is quite complex. And the other, as I touched on before, I think we've got to be very aware that children with an intellectual disability are not going to have the ability to read and get information as readily as other mm. children do. So you've got to look at how else do we get this information across to them if we can. But can I say, there's actually a lot of resources that have now been developed on this topic um, by, you know, and, and again, I think it's, it's terrific that there is now a lot of books and, and or online programs that have been developed specifically for children with different sorts of disabilities so that they've done in easy English or they're, they're done in using other sort of mediums and techniques. So I just want to say, I mean, yes, it yeah. is hard, but I think it's, it's a growing area where there are actually more resources than there have been in the past. So, again, encouraging parents and organisations, and we've got lists of those resources mm. to access them. Excellent. I agree that it's mm. difficult, but there's more information available. Providing children with the opportunities to talk about their thoughts and feelings and listening with our eyes as well as our emotions so that we understand when children are distressed or responding to something that's difficult for them. Ensuring that children themselves are able to identify safe people that they can share their thoughts and feelings with and keeping the communication with their families and networks open as well. So in some respects, um, it's really a matter of just making sure we're implementing good practice as we would if, um, for any other element of the provision of disability yes, services. that's right. Yeah. Can I just say, I think what something that both my colleagues said is really important, it's listening to the signs. Mm. And I think the children always show when something is awry. They do it in a range of ways. They do it in their behaviour, they do it in their, you know, the, the, just the feeling about them. And I think it is listening to children, but I think it's also providing opportunities for children to participate in activities in the organisation in a more proactive way. Yeah. And I think that is a big cultural shift, and you're mm. absolutely right. It's probably mm. the one that the biggest step to take is to believe that children, first of all, do have a right to participate and have the capacity to do that mm. and providing opportunities for them to participate, giving feedback about different things that are important to them, giving feedback about their experiences and parents building their participation in at different committees and, and making sure they are active members of the organisation in whatever way is possible. I don't I think. think it's drawing too long a bow to say that yes. this is consistent with the overarching philosophy that the sector has taken in regards to people with disability and talking about Absolutely. nothing about us without us Absolutely. in, ter in, in yep. terms of yep. making that real. Yep. And children mm. can do that as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, you've all been involved to a greater or lesser extent in the implementation of the standards and certainly in some instances their development. What's been the challenges so far? I think there are many challenges. I think partly the challenge is that it is a change in mindset. I mean, I think the beginning position that most people have, and it's absolutely understandable, is this could never happen in our organisation. You know, this is you know, we are a caring organisation. We have very high quality workers. Uh, we are dedicated to the rights of our clients. It couldn't happen here. 
And I would say something as dramatically as saying, if you think that, then you have to completely change your position because it could happen here and it may have happened here and it does happen here. So it's changing people's mindsets and that's very challenging. Mm. It's really quite confronting for how people feel. I've started to do some training. We've been doing some sessions implementing these standards and I think seeing people's faces is really quite, you know, and people look really shocked when you read these statistics. You know, people look, there's a sense of, you know, this couldn't happen. I mean, it's really very confronting on a personal level, it's, it's very evocative. If it does evoke personal feelings of distress for yourself, don't, you know, please honour that and get some support and help. There may be situations in people's own families that this becomes very painful. It's a very difficult topic. It's a very distressing topic. And I think that's one of the challenges. We have to shift away from that. We have to be able to say, yes, this does happen and we need to do whatever needs to happen needs to be done to ensure it doesn't keep on happening. Is there an organisational type which is more rather than less likely to believe that it couldn't happen to them? Well, ironically, it's sort of going to sound like a contradiction, but I think people who are very caring and people who see themselves as, you know, always having been very respectful and providing a good quality organisation or, or service directly for them, you know, themselves, I think it's incredibly challenging to think that they may not have been able to provide the structures and the support for mm. someone as vulnerable as a child mm. with disability as they would have liked to believe they could have. And I think that's, I think for all of us, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't get harder than this. So I think that needs to be said. I think that mm. need, it's part of the challenge. This is really tough to think about, but we, we, can't, we can't ignore it anymore. We've got to you know, take action and we've got to do better than what we have. And Julie? Your question to Deb about the type of organisation, mm. and I would agree that it's an organisation that does for instead of doing with, and could be very caring and well-intentioned, but perhaps paternal or parental it's approach. A, a, an organisational culture of help and care rather than support. That's right, yes. And of course we as a sector are absolutely committed to the notion of disability support mm. rather than disability care. Yes. May I add something else? Because I think there are lots of myths and assumptions about children with disability and I think one of them is that they aren't sexual beings or they don't have the same feelings that other children have and or they wouldn't understand about feelings about their body and changes. And I think this is one of the greatest injustices we've done to children is the myth that they don't understand about these things and therefore we don't need to teach them about it or it would be putting ideas into their mind or it would be scary for them. The challenge, therefore, is we have to shift that mindset to also think, yes, these are children that have the same feelings as all children and therefore they have the same needs as all children to learn about development, mm. you know, learn about things that may be happening to them that are a bit frightening or scary and how they can respond to it. So the challenge is, is, it, is adjusting people's mindsets about how they might perceive this area. So storytelling can be tremendously useful to illustrate how things have changed. What are all of you seeing now in terms of what's different and what positive changes and benefits are you aware of that have occurred when organisations have become child safe for everybody? I would say it's a work in progress. Yep. We've made some improvements with uh, forums for families, including children, to provide feedback and having children involved at the school in making decisions and planning for their activities. And also for our flexible respite, small groups and matching people together in small groups for activities rather than one-on-one -on -one or larger groups. I agree with Julie. I think it's very early days in relation to the um, standards. Uh, in Victoria it was 2016 when they came in and mm. then it's actually been the rollout. I understand at the moment that there may even be a, a process of trying to ensure that schools, for example, are signed up for by getting their school councils and the principals yes. to sign a statutory declaration. That's a very, could be a very controversial thing to do because you're getting one person in an organisation to put their credibility and, and even be exposing themselves personally to a liability for something that may well be out of their control. So I think we need to look again as a community as to what we think is the best way of doing this. So I do think it's only early days. 
yes, we need to get it out there and we've got to make sure that people are, are aware and changing behaviours. But as I said before, I don't think that, for example, schools were inherently unsafe. Mm. <laughs> before then, it's, it's about improvement and continual improvement. So. Mm. I do think that um, from National Disability Services' perspective, we'll be very keen to hear from providers and members in particular talking about the stories, both challenging and positive, surrounding the implementation of child safety in Victoria to make sure that we're understanding how the child safe standards are actually operating in practice and how they're operating within disability service organisations. I've seen lots of really positive um, changes and heard lots of really positive stories. And even in our reference group, in our meetings, there were people were really appreciative of the opportunity, weren't they, just to even to talk about this topic. I mean, I think it's sort of breaking something that's, as I said, been very invisible, been, you know, don't, it's too hard, don't talk about it. And I think it's giving permission for organisations, for workers, for parents, for children to talk about a topic that, really needs to be talked about mm. and processed and understood. And I've, I've had so many examples. There was a lovely story of one of the members of our reference group who, when they were sent through one of the version of the slides that we've been working on, sat down with some of the other staff and just went through them with them. And the other staff, they were, I think, uh, support workers, and they said, I've never... like They were just amazed. I've never seen these sort of things talked about before. It's so good that we can talk about it. It's hard, but it's really good. And that's been a message that's been said... Repeatedly, I've had parents say to me, this is the very first time anyone's talked to me about this or anyone's given me permission to talk about this. I've done some work with young people, they've said the same. There's almost a sense of relief that people have got, that this is now out in the open, it can be talked about, therefore something can be done about it in a more you know, positive way. And I think there's a lot of good work being done in organisations. People are really thoughtfully thinking about how are we going to do this and implementing the changes. Mm. So I think it's exciting. I had an experience in a previous role, another organisation before Child Safe Standards, identifying somebody with grooming behaviour and the challenge that that was to try and describe that and to have people respond to that to change it was really very, very difficult. And I would hope that now if somebody was going through that, that it would be easier because of the child safe standards. Sure, we'd, we'd all hope for that, Julie, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Let's, let's hope the standards achieve that and many other really positive things. Look, um, it's now time to wrap up our discussion. I just wanted to say on behalf of all of us and um, NDS, talking to children with disability about feeling safe is an important conversation and is supported by having many other conversations that need to happen as stepping stones. Don't start with the hard topics. Create an environment where you talk on a regular basis about everyday topics, the child's interests, friends, family, what they do and don't like. You'll find it's worth it hearing the voice of the child. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. Thank you. This podcast episode was produced with thanks to the Victorian Commission for Children and Young People. Copyright 2018 National Disability Services.